Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. On today's episode of The Deep Dive, I'm joined by Dr. Jane Engel and Dr. Tanya chung Tiam Fook. Collectively, they are two of the editors and contributors for Sacred Civics, Building Seven Generation Cities. Dr. Jane Engel has worked globally as an urbanist, experimentalist, and curator of change processes, and until recently as Communities Director at the McConnell Foundation, with a portfolio including Future Cities, Participatory Canada, and Civic Indigenous 7.0. She's worked in context of deep societal change from economic transition in post-Soviet Central Europe to participatory research in Haiti's 2010 post-disaster reconstruction efforts and in urban and policy and regeneration in U.S., Canada, and Western European cities. She holds a Ph.D. in urban planning, policy, and design from McGill University, where she's an adjunct professor, and she's a co-editor of a new book, Sacred Civics, Building Seven Generation Cities. Dr. Tanya chung Tiam Fook specializes in the areas of climate and ecological resilience, indigenous knowledges and partnerships, innovation, placekeeping, and health and mental wellness. Working in nonprofit, academic, government, and grassroots settings across Canada and internationally, she leads research and knowledge co-creation, program and content development, partner, Partnership Strategy and Advising as Director of Research for the Center for Indigenous Innovation and Technology and Associate of Future Cities Canada. She has an advisory role as subject specialist on numerous panels and committees. I want to welcome both of them to the deep dive. So after those those lengthy but well-deserved introductions, I'm, I'm really happy to, to have this conversation. It's just so good to see these smiling faces reflected back at me. How is everyone doing? Great. Thanks, Phil. Really well. Thanks so much uh, for inviting us, Phil. Love your podcast and thrilled to be here. Thanks. Oh, thank you. Praise, by the way, is always appreciated. So feel free to, to throw in as much as you want whenever feel you feel moved. You know, I'm a complete egomaniac and and love praise showered upon me. Um, so That's why I did it, I knew that <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> just just as a little bit of background to the listeners who are kind of checking or listening to this. I don't know when you'll be listening to it. Probably in a week or two. But I had the opportunity to be in Texas this past weekend. I I, I call it an opportunity loosely as a as a proud progressive. But nonetheless, I was in Texas and and got a chance to actually spend time with, with Jane in person. So she got to kind of deal with me as a human being in a in a public space and, and survived the experience. So we are exactly we've had a, it still showed up this morning. So absolutely. We've had a we've had a lot of good laughs over the over those two, three days together. So I appreciate that time. Um so, so nonetheless, let's jump into this conversation because this is one that I've been been really excited to have. And as I said in the introduction, the the book is called Sacred Civics: Building Seven Generation Cities, and it is a, a truly a, a wealth of of information and thought leadership and perspectives that I think is going to be a valuable resource to those who are interested in taking on really big questions about how we view our world, our cities, and and all the extensions of those things. So, you know, Tanya, you and I have spoken a little less, right? Because this is our first opportunity to talk. So I want to give, give you a chance to weigh in first on, you know, why you think putting this this volume together was important. Like what inspired the, this partnership that led to Sacred Civics? Well, I might take a step back and uh, just speak to uh, my evolving friendship and uh, and 
you know, just a wonderful uh, kind of professional partnership with uh, Jane Engel. She's been uh, such a, a wonderful introduction in, into my world in these past, I think, almost four years now. And so we met while I was working uh, at an organization in Toronto and part of a platform that Jane was one of the co-founders with, uh, with her past foundation that she worked with, McConnell Foundation, and the platform is called uh, Future cities Canada and so we got to you know start brainstorming and and you know kind of building cultivating a relationship together we got to you know be part of a, a few different events or convenings co-host uh, I think a couple as well and you know along the way Jane you know spoke a little bit about her ideas around sacred civics and you know even though I had never heard that term before but I was so intrigued and it it so eclipsed I think my own you know kind of feelings and and imaginings and thoughts around cities and 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 what could be possible in cities but also what a lot of the problems have been and 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 you know just the arc of transformation that's needed and, you know, I tend to think of, you know, um, everyday people, you know, with the many gifts that we contribute and the imaginings for what a better world could be for our young people, for future generations, you know, that we are the ones we've been waiting for. I've often thought of that instead of waiting for governments and, and you know, corporations and institutions in our cities and our societies, we really have to come back to, to ourselves. And so, you know, I had been really uh, grappling with rich diversity of residents, practitioners, civil society organizations, civic institutions uh, could better work together to recover and learn from the intermingling of all, you know, the diversity of our values, our teachings, our wisdoms, our stories, ways of knowing and doing that really are the beating heart of cities toward a, a radical rework worlding of cities, you know, through new ways of writing relations, gifting and reciprocating, valuing with wisdom, communing and stewarding, lawing and futuring together, um, you know, for the, the common good and, and the enhanced well-being of all peoples, ecologies and future generations. Grappling with all of this and, and, and how to bring, how to birth it, how to, you know, steward it in the world in better ways. You know, Jane's um, fantastic ideas around sacred civics and, you know, and how to bring this forth with many different change makers and, and dreamers, innovators, scholars, knowledge keepers, practitioners from around the world was really exciting. I feel really thoroughly blessed uh, to be have been on this incredible journey, uh, co-creating and, and reworlding with Jane and Julian and all of our different authors. So I think I'll leave it there. Thank you. Absolutely. I mean, Jane, I think that's a, a perfect place to obviously bring you into the conversation. And, you know, it, it clearly the spirit of collaboration between the the both of you as as editors. And I know there's there's more people on the editorial team, but since I'm talking to you too, I will kind of keep the conversation here and and all of the contributors that that took part in this. And you know, definitions are are really important. And I, I feel that there was a, a clear intention to, you know, title the book in the way way that you that you all did. So with that, Jane, can you share a little bit more about this term sacred civics, right? It, it seems like, as, as Tanya kind of alluded to, that it's one that existed in, in your workings and maybe in other people's workings as well prior to the to the book. So, so where did you, why did you land there and kind of walk us through the significance of that? Mm -hmm. Sure. Thanks. Well, it is, uh, it, it is deliberately a contested term. Uh, the, the term sacred is, is loaded. It has multiple meanings to multiple people. So the fact that it is loaded and, and is contested is actually, we see as a positive thing because it's a, it's a really important place for dialogue, for debate and dialogue. So that's one thing. But then specifically, the use of the term actually relates to one of the origin pieces for the book. So in addition to what, uh, what Tanya mentioned, 
one of the things that actually brings this into very practical, uh, a practical example, which is also very much about kind of world bridging, world bridging from the cities as we build them now and as they exist now and, and their current sort of dominant paradigm trajectories to the kinds of uh, cities that we feel that we need to build for the future. This really came to, to light in a project by a company called Sidewalk Labs or proposed by Sidewalk Labs, which is a Google sister company, part of the alphabet, you know, under the alphabet umbrella of companies, which was proposed in Toronto a few years ago. And right after the proposal for that came out, so, you know, this, this was one of the first forays into a big tech, you know, affiliated company getting into building a whole city neighborhood and all of the implications of that. And of course that raised so much interesting and rich civic debate, not only in Toronto, but really around the world, right? And in Toronto, very specifically, there, there were a whole group uh, of civic activists who were, who were well engaged in debating this. And one of the things that happened was after the Sidewalk Labs original proposal came out in 2019, a small group of activists got together and kind of in a sort of in a plea for, for civic agency or in a statement of civic agency, they brought together, they invited about 100 of us from around the world who think about cities to just write short essays about about an idea for the future of cities or some sort of project or concept, not necessarily contesting sidewalk labs directly, but really just our visions. And what I wrote about was valuing the sacred in the city. Because for me, one of the things that that project represented was not just about you know, the obvious technologies, the obvious implications of big tech being in the city building industry, so to speak, but also that it represented for me a loss of civic agency. And that civic agency is sacred. And so I wrote that in the very last line of it is that an invitation for us to think more relationally, more long term into seven generations and to cultivate a new sacred civics. And that term was picked up by a lot of people. A lot of people contacted me and said, oh, that really resonates your, your essay and so on. And so we began to uh, to continue to cultivate the ideas with really an ecosystem of people we were working with on Civic Indigenous 7.0 and, uh, and other things related to future cities and so on. Yeah, so that's really kind of where it came from. And that's a little bit about sacred. Maybe I'll just pause there for now. No, that's that's perfect. And I'm, I'm glad that that Sidewalk Labs did come up because as a as a New Yorker, I was familiar with, um, for example, Dan Doctoroff, right? One of the sort of engineers of not necessarily that project itself but he was very he was a big part of google's push in that direction having having worked there and he was a um longtime deputy mayor of of new york in in one of the most i think we'll look back at the at his tenure in new york and sort of the giuliani into bloomberg years of radical rezoning in New York as as being probably one of the more destructive times for New York City in terms of gentrification and displacement of people and affordable housing, maybe since like Robert Moses, right? Yeah, like, yeah. You can't can't go too far away from from talking about New York and destruction than Robert Moses. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, and and I, I do just want to hasten to add something to clarify something. Absolutely. And that is that I'm not at all anti-technology. So so this isn't this isn't a statement of that. So to be clear about that, what what I believe is that we can, you know, technology can actually be in very, very different interests than it currently is. But actually I, I I welcome so many of the technologies, but I think it invites us to question things like you know, can so-called smart cities foster equality, public trust, regenerative design, biophilia, rather than sort of take away in many cases from, from those things that have very different logics? And, um, and, you know, are we building the kinds of digital infrastructures, you know, not only that are radically inclusive for people now, but also that will carry us towards a future that is fit for future generations and so on. So I just wanted to just wanted to make sure I clarify. Oh, yeah, that. absolutely. Clarifications are more are more than welcome. And anyone who knows me knows I'm completely a high functioning Luddite. So I'm like, no one, no one needs to defend their their love of technology to me because I'm usually like most of this shit sucks. But <laughs> but nonetheless, 
<laughs> I'm glad for for the clarification. You know, I, I want to turn back, Tanya, to you and kind of give you an opportunity to share a little bit about the importance of, of metaphors, because that was something that seemed to be woven throughout the book. And and you mentioned, you know, I think very, very clearly and is very illuminating that many of the terms in the book are used as verbs, right? They're meant to be actionable. So if we can maybe tie those two things together, the, the use of creating different metaphors and different stories, and also using so much of the terminology as a as a verb. Like what what do you think about that as a kind of a, a manual going going forward? <laughs> so yeah, I thank you so much for that question. Yeah, I, I think you know I, I come from Akawaiu indigenous lineage from Guyana, but also uh, a number of other cultural lineages. And so you know, one thing that always comes up for me is just the strength of of metaphor in in terms of how we synthesize knowledge. And so you know, when we have these these cultural spiritual metaphors, but also conceptual metaphors, they really help us to to understand and and kind of you know orient ourselves. And you know, I, I think throughout the book, um, but especially when we had come to the the end of the book and we're um, looking to of course do the framing in introductory chapter uh, you know kind of tweak and, and evolve in different ways that work um, as we're faced with you know ever more complex um, challenges and, and situations in our world and so um, so you know as I was thinking through all of that um, something like, um, you know, the, the original instructions that are, are very key to a lot of our different uh, Indigenous cultures and, and uh, you know, philosophical traditions, um, you know, creation stories, origin stories, um, are, are, you know, they, it kept coming through to me. And so it was really important for me to think about how sacred civics emerging as this new paradigm that is actually bringing forward, you know, again, these long-held collective ways of, of knowing, being, and doing. And then, um, so, so that, that was one piece um, in, in terms of metaphor that, that kind of is woven throughout. Um, so that, that, that orientation, that compass, if you will, that will be, you know, adapted, customized, interpreted very uniquely by each and every reader. Another metaphor has been prophecy. And so, you know, a lot of the, the work, I think, of, of sacred civics is, is how we come together um, from all of our different places and spaces and, um, and, and worldviews and, you know, and, and different disciplines or, or fields of, of study and work. How do we come together to awaken these ancient prophecies and activate this consciousness to build healthier communities, improved systems, pathways for change and social infrastructures. So that, that's the work that we're doing, I think, uh, through this book and, and what our invitation uh, through Sacred Civics is to, to everyone. And I'm I'm glad you mentioned the the that uh, that particular prophecy because it's in my notes, right? So that that let me know that I was reading this and maybe catching things that were important because I I, I did want to spend a, a little bit of time there. So Jane, I'm going to let you jump in real quick. Yeah, I, I just want to jump in um, on the importance of of metaphor uh, also here because there are already lots of metaphors for cities, cities as bad machines, cities as separate from nature, cities as, you know, the places that are actually antithetical to, to some of the worlds that we need to build. And what we seriously lack are transcendent metaphors for cities. And given, you know, given, given the liminality of this time between worlds that we're in, we feel like there's, you know, immense possibility in cities to have transcendent metaphors. And so we, a couple that we pointed to are, you know, cities as vast human nature, not to separate humans and nature, but um, human, more than human worlds uh, collaborations. 
and also even getting into a, a, a little bit Afro and Indigenous futurisms. And, you know, we mentioned, of course, one of my favorite movies, uh, Black Panther and Wakanda. And what, you know, what Wakanda represents is, you know, a place that avoided settler colonialism as we, you know, as it came to pass over hundreds of years. And the ideas of that are absolutely critical for us to for us to bring into being and for us to bring into our collective imaginations about what is possible so that over time we can rebuild our cities with very different imaginings of how we can shape based on uh, people's natures and lands being being sacred. So yeah, meta- transcendent metaphors, not just metaphor, but transcendent metaphors are critical. And, you know, I think that that gives us a, a chance to, to kind of jump into a slightly little bit of a diversion uh, around, like you mentioned, there are existing metaphors around cities. And one of the things I kind of jotted down that cities, and again, this is, I, I always preface that, you know, despite not being from here, I did grow up here, um, here being Brooklyn specifically, but the United States more generally. So a lot of my thinking is in the culture and world that I've lived in, right? So this might not be true everywhere, but definitely in the United States, I, I feel like I've I've grown up in a world where cities are maligned, right? Cities are the place where all the bad things happen, particularly the city that I live in, New York City. Maybe that is a, a function of very famously in the fiscal crisis of the 70s, you know, Nixon tells New York to go to hell, right? That was like the the popular or Ford, I think it was Ford, probably Ford president at the time, New York's in fiscal crisis and basically gives New York the fingers according to the, the Daily News, right? So that was the kind of world that you grow up in, that like your city is the source of all the problems and it's pretty much like ignored by the higher powers, the, the federal government in this case. So cities in the United States, I feel are often maligned, you know, lunatic conservatives when confronted with violence from the state will say, well, look at Chicago, right? Like all of these are code, right? Some loud, some silent or pretend to be silent that say cities are the problem. So how do we challenge that when someone like myself would say, maybe others, cities are the place with the most abundance promise. And if, and it's always been that way, right? Like mm-hmm. people don't go from the, the places to the podunk places, right? There's a reason why they went to Rome, right? <laughs> and, you know, and all, and all the rest of it. So kind of continuing, Jane, I'll give you a chance to kind of continue that thought. Mm-hmm. Like cities as malign spaces, like why and how do your transcendent metaphors kind of push back against that framing? Yeah, thanks. Thanks for the question. So people love to be together and cities attract other people, even when there is clear evidence, as there is in so many parts of the world, that people will actually be worse off if they go to cities. And so many cities have enacted policies to try to keep people out, to stop growing, and it's almost impossible to do. So there is something that attracts people to cities, even even with all of the uh, uh, problems of cities. So, so that's one thing I want to come back to. Um, but a second thing is that we that we often forget is that cities are actually the largest systems of systems that humans build, right? It's it's the largest thing we build collectively, and we've built them in ways though that they've become in many cases. And I say this, you know, as a city, somebody who's been trained in and practiced city planning for decades. City planning is often a technocratic endeavor, right? It's technocratic endeavor with logics of markets, short-term financial interests that 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 come into play, and it's not about they're they're not fundamentally about being uh, being building equality for everyone and building better long-term futures and so on. They're they're they have been designed, especially in the past couple of hundred years, with very specific logics. And those logics are antithetical to human, in many cases, antithetical to um, large-scale human thriving. Yes, if you can thrive quite well, thank you, but uh, but they have not been been built been built for that. So that that's a big part of it. But the possibility is that because they do draw people, and people actually can't resist being together in cities, so there is something about that. 
there's there is tremendous possibility. But again, it's this this notion that that there's an antithetical um, aspect to it. And I have to say that you know something that. For, for many years keeps me up at night, wakes me up in the morning, is not thinking of cities as separate from nature. And actually that nature and natural infrastructure should actually be the core and primary infrastructure of cities and, and could actually be built that way and need to be rebuilt that way over time for us to have uh, the kinds of futures that we need. So I see tremendous possibility, but I also see that we haven't treated uh, we haven't treated cities like that. And just to one last point, and to connect this also with the with the idea of metaphor, it's really interesting that I think it, I think it was in the 1950s there was a city plan for a city in uh, Japan. I think it might have been Kyoto, where uh, the plan actually suggested that um, we should treat the city as home. What an idea. Like, of course we should. Actually, most of us in the world live, actually do live in cities or urban environments. But treating the city at home and the implication was just as we, especially in Japanese culture, but in many other cultures, just as we would never walk into a home with our shoes on, right? Because our home is a sacred place, right? We leave our shoes outside or we leave, shoes can be a metaphor too. We leave things outside of our home we wouldn't bring into our home because it's a it's a sacred place. They actually propose that cars and car infrastructure should also be left outside the city because we should go into the city as a place that is that is for people and nature and social life and a very different kind of economic life than what we've created in cities. So I love that metaphor as well. City is home that we treat as sacred which is of course very different than, than what we have as a whole, but there are pockets of it, of course, and it's very much, very much possible. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And and for those of you who aren't taking off your shoes in homes, like stop doing that, right? Like take on, on that practice. Um, Tanya, it looks like you want to add, add to that point. And then I'm going to go to you for a question specifically. So weigh in, and then I'm going to come right back to you. <laughs> Thank you. Just kind of continuing on from, from where Jane left off. I, I also love the, the idea of cities um, being thought of and respected and, and you know, really honored as, as our, our home, our, our, our living space where we, um, you know, where we enact all of our, you know, hopefully most precious relationships and you know do a lot of our, our own kind of growth as as human beings um, but to connect on on the the metaphor um, as well and and thinking about cities in a different way I don't come from an urban planning and uh, uh, an innovation background uh, in, in my training at all I come from more uh, environmental studies and climate resilience and you know and, and to think of, of cities as these kind of living thriving, organisms, you know, with communities, economies, structures, systems, um, all built and and nourished by and and driven by, you know, our natural systems, um, and that the bones and the soul um, of cities uh, are are really informed by, um, especially across Turtle Island, but in many parts of the world, uh, different Indigenous, both prior and current uh, cultures, but also other ancient cultures, um, but also thinking about cities, you know, I, I, I love all this kind of poetic uh, and, and kind of eco-inspired metaphor, but, you know, that they are interconnected through a, a kind of mycorrhizal type network of relationships, uh, flows that enliven and sustain um, both, again, our natural systems, but also definitely our civic systems, you know, that the air we breathe, the food we eat, um, the way that our bodies, our knowledges, societies and structures have co-evolved in attunement with our environments, with our uh, fellow more than human species or kin, as well as our, our human kin interdependency and affiliation with the natural world and the cosmos really link us, I think, in moral and ethical ways to all other beings and to, you know, future generations, both of, uh, of humans and, and those more than human beings. And they compel us to live by a set of accountabilities um, that have been, again, very important uh, and, and, you know, revisited throughout the book in, in many different ways. But accountabilities of 
course, to other people and communities, to the design cycle of what we produce and, and its impacts to the earth herself and, and to future generations. And, um, you know, and I, I think about as residents and city builders, we're really called upon to live in ways that coexist with and are in reciprocity uh, with all other beings and the earth. And, you know, and in that, we must really kind of think very deeply about the purpose of cities and who and what they're built for, um, who is being excluded, who is being privileged or or uh, included at the very least and then those those policy levers and and societal transformations that are needed to create more inclusive caring just and sustainable cities um, for all of us uh, now and into the future and um, yeah I mean there's no there's a lot of there's a lot of things in what we're all saying right primarily the the two of you in the sense that Clearly, as as two of the editors on this, there's a cohesion in in value systems and thought processes to in order to bring the book to life. And you know, I'm listening to everything you're saying, and I've absorbed the book, and I've, I'm I'm brought back to this, this point that I kind of underlined here in the kind of scattering of notes. This idea of of ownership and the idea of stewardship, which is a word that both of you have used. It's a, it's a word um, with kind of like my kind of definition that I've used in, in my work as well. And understanding that there's different definitions to all of it, right? So I'll, I'll also afford space to add definition where one or either of you see see fit to do that. But what I always tell folks when I'm when I'm doing a talk or doing whatever, and these ideas are, are part of that talk, is that ownership and stewardship are not just different ways of looking at the world. They have different value systems in place, and those value systems will give you different outcomes. So when you mention, for example, accountability and this idea of, of a multi-generational perspective, a, a way of including our relationship with the larger ecological world and species and, and our that we're all a part of. I've been on the community board in, in Brooklyn many years ago. None of that stuff comes up, right? And I'm, I'm, I'm not poking holes in it, but I'm making the point that the ownership model that is so ingrained on so many levels has very little capacity to, to have a broader conversation. Now, that's not to say that we're doomed and we shouldn't have that conversation, we definitely should, right? Because at least we know who's aligned against us. But why I'm offering all this, and there's, I promise there's a question coming. <laughs> um, how do we navigate through those two very disparate ways of looking at the world? Because when I think about my parents' journey here, right? They, they moved from Barbados and Guyana, so what's up, cousin? Um, you know, and home ownership was home ownership was such a fundamental idea of not just their story but many immigrant stories right and and that's the kind of key to success right like i now own this piece of a city and then my accountability now gets more narrow as long as i take care of my house and you get where i'm going with this so what i'm what i'm trying to flesh out and i don't even know if there isn't an, an answer right is how do we move through all of that to challenge the very notion of ownership against all of this other stuff that is more connective and more helpful as, as we move forward? So I just dumped a lot out there. Um, <laughs> apologize. Um, so Jane, do you want to jump in there? Time, who want, whoever wants to go, kind of go. Even though I said I would kind of direct you both one way or another, so I'm breaking my own rules. Um, I'll, I'll be happy to start if that's okay, Tanya, um, because this is what what you name here is so important, and I would uh, I would be very disappointed if we got through this interview without naming this because it is one of the big elephants in the room, <laughs> right? The big elephant in the room of our cities. How do we transform um, urban economics as we understand them while also challenging uh, notions of property rights, which Property rights, you know, as, as we mentioned in the book, the, the economist uh, Thomas Piketty um, refers to a quasi-sacralization of property rights. 
in which even though we recognize that our current property rights regimes and, and ownership regimes lead to serious societal externalities, we almost consider those externalities a sacrifice in the interest of public good because ownership is good. Property ownership is good. Like that is in our, uh, that is very much in certain cultural worldviews. Not, not everyone's worldviews, but that has become kind of a dominant Western, Western worldview. And there are also a lot of critics who, who are saying it is killing us. I mean, literally, property will cost us the earth. Is uh, I think it's Andreas Weber who said that that we quote in the book, and and that you know John Ralston Saul said, you know, property ownership actually involves a whole lot of control, it, or it's this crude European concept that involves a whole lot of control with very little responsibility, and uh, and and that it does. And and I think there is an increasing recognition that how we've constructed property ownership and what it leads to in relation to our financial markets leads to increasing inequality. We see that in our housing markets and the, and the financialization of housing. We see it in so many things that is marginalizing people to an obscene extent now. And we're also stealing from future generations how we're constructing these property rights and ownership and financial regimes. So it has to be addressed. And I realized that, you know, just by saying that, many people might just turn us off, but, but it has to be addressed. And it doesn't, you know, it doesn't mean that today or, or, or tomorrow we completely change everything, but it actually does mean, I think, that we work towards very different paradigms. And there are very different paradigms already happening. They're just too small so far. But, you know, there are all kinds of things like the land back movement, which, you know, if Tanya wants to talk about the land back and land back in cities is a really interesting movement. And of course, there are all kinds of urban commoning movements and urban commoning I use in the broad sense, which can mean uh, all kinds of different forms of either community or collaborative based ownership, or it can actually mean self-sovereignty of land and then community ownership of buildings or cooperative uh, cooperative sharing. And some of these also build in perpetual affordability. And so these kinds of things need to be made much more visible because there are fantastic examples and they need to be um, scaled in very large ways. And we have a tremendous opportunity to do that now because housing crises are almost everywhere. And the answer to housing crises is not to build exactly the way we have up to now with the same sort of systems, just kind of tinkering at the margins, adding supply, tinkering at the margins, a small policy here, a small one there. That's actually not going to fix the larger set of systems that perpetuate the, uh, the gross inequality that we have. But I'll stop there. I want to let Tanya jump in. Yeah, absolutely, Tanya. I'd love to, to get your, your thoughts on, on this as well. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, thank you, Jane. Um, starting from uh, an Indigenous perspective, thinking about cities, you know, that this, of course, uh, and Jane referenced, uh, of course, the land back movement that is quite active across Turtle Island, but also in, in other global regions. And um, and so, you know, for Indigenous peoples uh, in, in and around cities, urban, you know, hubs uh, around the world, land and, and land, you know, control or ownership is, of course, a deeply contested and fraught and, and extremely painful uh, in many ways uh, issue and um, you know th there's not time or space right now to to go into the intricacies of, of all of that but just to say that you know I, I think you know there's there's a lot of I, I like to focus uh, on the positive you know with a lot of us in many different ways uh, very importantly um, you know really challenging and and deconstructing what's wrong in our world right now you know but I, I also like to think about, you know, what, what are the positive uh, and, and kind of regenerative, transformative uh, initiatives going forward. And so there are a lot of different uh, partnerships underway, you know, whether they be, you know, Indigenous with different Indigenous nations and, and municipalities or, you know, or, or different Indigenous movements, uh, organizations, as well as the many non-Indigenous settler allies and, and economies 
accomplices that have uh, joined in, in those uh, actions, initiatives and movements um, that are, are really holding a lot of promise in, in terms of how do we take some of the, the land that, you know, is, is under treaty or some other type of, you know, kind of ancestral uh, or, or and or legal agreement uh, with Indigenous nations and, and give it under the stewardship, guardianship of those nations. And, uh, and so that's, that's part of the land back movement. Also, you know, making sure that a lot of these lands are, you know, able to produce food and, and answer a lot of the, the problematic issues and, and barriers around uh, food insecurity in our cities, particularly that are facing Indigenous and other marginalized and racialized communities. So there, there's a lot of textures uh, to, to a lot of what's what's going on. But I think, you know, in, in terms of going back to our, our to the Sacred Civics book and, um, and what Jane uh, mentioned around commoning, this is one of the, the big themes and, and pathways of, of praxis that uh, that we really highlight in the book. And if I may, I, I, I would love to to kind of go a little more deeply into that because I think it it draws on a lot of what we've been speaking about and, and that transitioning out from, you know, an exclusively, you know, market-driven private property and, and land ownership system that we've all been entangled in for, for a very long time and, you know, providing different alternative ways or, or you know, approaches that, uh, that have a lot of promise and that are already going on and have been continuously going on for a very long time. And so commoning, and we call it commoning with wisdom, you know, is, is really an ancient practice, um, you know, and, and as I said, is still ongoing in a number of different cultural societies uh, around the world, but also a, a number of contemporary urban uh, communities and neighborhoods and, and sets of organizations or, or coalitions that are, are you know, um, revitalizing, uh, commoning in, in many exciting and promising ways. So, you know, collective land holding and stewardship and revitalizing it in our contemporary worlds as a pathway of reciprocity and collectively established roles and responsibilities or those accountabilities that you spoke to, Philip. Um, of guardianship and governance um, of commonly shared lands, uh, resources, food systems, housing, digital spaces even, and, you know, commons of, of knowledge and, and information. And they have the potential to be highly effective and sustainable, you know, because they are, you know, they represent quite profound systemic transformation. They tend to strengthen, um, you know, holistic social relationships um, that we as people used to and, and should continue to or, or, or recover those, those holistic social relationships to local food and local food systems, our civic uh, assets and, and other types types of infrastructure and, and, you know, what we've called a civic reactivation in cities. Mm -hmm. um, and then in our world today, you know, I think it's really important that commons and, and many other forms of civic organization and governance of these natural built uh, social and digital spaces um, be activated through not only social relations as such, but social relations of decoloniality, you know, bringing uh, a very active decolonizing lens and, and kind of modus of action, collective action uh, in, in many different ways, um, but also social and ecological justice, participatory community action and governance. We need to really reconfigure our economies, our institutions in many different ways to enable, you know, these kinds of shifts and, and transitions to, to happen more and more. And, you know, and, and how can we use them also to um, strengthen local democracy and, and building civic trust uh, amongst people uh, within communities, but of, of course, across uh, residents, uh, municipalities, institutions, and, um, you know, and, and corporate uh, actors as well. Absolutely. And, 
you know, I'm, I'm keeping an eye on the time because I want to get us out here kind of close to when I said, um, but I got a lot more to cover. So I'm going to go for a, a couple more here at, at least. And, you know, I, I knew this was going to be a, a, a conversation that, that needed the space. So I, I kind of took out the off the dome part of the, of the interview. So for those listeners who were really waiting for off the dome, we're not going to have off the dome. We're going to have a couple more questions and then we're going to get into the drop. But I'm, I'm glad the idea of, of, decolonizing came up in in your the last part of your answer you kind of brought in that as a that word and term and it is a, a term that can mean some different things to different people it's also a term that's used a lot now in in many different capacities but I want to connect it very specifically to an idea that runs through several of the essays in, in the book this this notion of of space and place. And, and the distinction between those things. They, they sound as if they are the same, but they are not. And so I want to tie this idea of decolonizing to space and place. So if there's an opportunity for you to spend a, a little bit of time there, and, and, and Tanya, if you can kind of maybe pick that up, and, and Jane, if you want to jump in as well, I'm not trying to keep you out of that part of the conversation, but I want to just spend a, a little bit of time there. Because again, terms, terminology is important. And, and I think people hearing these distinctions can also be useful because it ties very much to the way the book is organized, right? Space, time, agency, togetherness. Again, words not usually heard in this space, right? So backtracking space and place, distinction, and then the connection to how those apply to specifically apply to decolonizing? Yeah. So, I mean, definitely spaces and places can eclipse one another uh, for sure. But, you know, um, I, I think a lot of us uh, are starting to see where they they diverge as well. And, you know, and what is unique uh, about each of them. And, you know, and I've, I've spent a great deal of time, you know, especially with my, my placekeeping uh, hat on uh, or, or kind of lenses on and, you know, really thinking about um, not only as Indigenous peoples or, or, or different cultural communities, but, you know, all of us in, in our, our, you know, multiplicity, plurality of, of ways, you know, how we tend to, you know, occupy place, but, but also, you know, kind of taking a step back and, and remembering that place occurs usually on land. And, you know, and again, um, bringing us back to the idea that, you know, that land, um, it, it's beautiful, it's rich, it, it's fecund, it's full of life. But land is also, you know, has become, unfortunately, a concept, you know, living place of, of tension and, and conflict for, for a lot of different peoples, including in urban spaces. And so, um, so just, just remembering that, you know, that place occurs on land and, and that, you know, that there might be um, a lot of different kind of intermingling or conflicting interests uh, around that land. And we spoke to, you know, the differences between private property and, and more collectively or commonly held, you know, ideas of, of land. Um, and then place is also where we, you know, we tend to do, you know, different things, different activities in our life, where we hold our relationships and cultivate them. Also, for me, it's a places are where we need to take care and really kind of become our truest selves and, and see how that um, develops in attunement to, to that place that we're in. How do we care for and steward those places as if they are home, you know, um, because they often are home. But, you know, even when we're in public places, you know, I, I think we also have to bring that sensibility you know, I, I wrote about in the book, you know, thinking about this, you know, coming back a little bit to the commons as well, but thinking about the civic commons, which is a, a, a concept that has come into our, our parlance quite a bit uh, in, in terms of cities, city building, 
um, public and civic engagement and such. And so civic commons, you know, whether they be natural, built or, or social, you know, they, they, they become these spaces for different people to, you know, work, play, and, and they're supposed to be public. They're supposed to or are intended to be for all people, for all residents. But I think a lot of us, you know, have come to, to realize even, you know, in quite visceral ways, quite violent ways sometimes, that those spaces may often not be safe for us or our communities. They may be, you know, again, quite um, politicized. They, they might be, you know, they might have been designed in ways that privilege certain people to have access to those spaces, you know, vis-a-vis the the exclusion or even erasure um, of of other peoples. And so, you know, this particularly, um, you know, for a lot of racialized communities, differently accessible or or abled communities and and different, you know, other marginalized, uh, especially socioeconomically marginalized communities, these are really, you know, big issues that we have to think about when we're, you know, looking at civic commons and um, designing space and and thinking about accessibility of of space for all people and I think you know that the decolonizing aspect comes in where you know we really want to encourage you know different civic leaders and um, and urban planners designers to really think about again you know how those spaces can become very politicized and and even violent or unsafe. Um, spaces for people and how can we work to decolonize those spaces by addressing and dismantling settler colonial histories, practices, policies um, that have, you know, sought to marginalize and even erase uh, different peoples. And then, you know, going to the, the more positive side of that, then how can they work with cultural communities, uh, other um, marginalized and racialized communities in cities to um, champion the transformations that those community members are, you know, working at tirelessly in their different ways. Um, and, and, you know, and our different, our, our plurality again of different, you know, forms of urbanism, of, of culture, of decolonial action that are happening uh, in spaces. And, um, you know, I, I think I'll leave it there because I, I could go on for a very long time about the, the many other types of, of spaces, but that that's, you know, one um, kind of piece of, of a much larger puzzle that I think is important to highlight. Absolutely. And and Jane, I want to jump to you with this one. So I'm going to kind of take a different tact on, on this question, and, and then we're going to jump into um, the drop where we can share some, some things with our, our listeners. But I think it's in, important that so much of the the what's shared in the book, so much of your individual work is this navigating through liminal spaces, that we are in in one place and looking to get to another. But even in, in getting to that other space, because of the, the seven generation idea, getting to this new space is, is actually a cascade effect to getting to many others, right? Because we have to have this now become a, a system or a collection of systems that can sustain itself over these, these seven generations. So these are in, incredibly far-reaching ideas. And I'm, I'm curious from your perspective, how do we, I'm not looking for exactly a blueprint, but there's there's so much in all of this to navigate. And what I'm trying to, to get at somewhat unsuccessfully is how do you start to manifest that in a way where we can start to see through some of these liminal spaces into what we want to have happen, where it becomes less theoretical and more actionable in keeping with this idea that all of this should be in terms of being a verb. Yeah. Well, there's, there's an easy question. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Let's go, let's go out with an easy one. Right. 
So what, what, what you're getting at is, is one of the reasons why we think a lot of this work in terms of world bridging. And we think of, of, of the work as world bridging. And also, you know, I think of every single author in this, in, in this book as, as a world bridger, or you as world bridgers, because many of us are recognizing that there is a whole lot of hospicing that needs to happen. Some people call it, you know, hospicing modernity and giving way toward, you know, new worlds that, that, that want to, that are emerging and that want to come into being. And so that requires organizing differently for change. So a lot of the organizations, a lot of the institutions that we have are not fit to build the kinds of things that, that, that we're talking about here, at least not on large scales. But of course we have those and I'm not so naive, right? I'm not so out there. Like I, I'm also very much a doer of very practical projects. So I, I love to bridge the very practical action with you know, this, uh, this radical collective imagination. So just just want to clarify that. And I think that some of the ways to do that are, first of all, you, you have to understand very clearly what is, very clearly what is, and where are, where are the openings? Where, where is there an Overton window that opens up? And we have to have these things lying around and, and ready to go. And we have to do experiments, even when they seem fairly small scale, we have to do experiments so that, you know, one experiment that we did here to create, you know, a self-sovereign, self-sovereign land just on this one parcel. Well, all of a sudden, now there's a recognition that rights of nature should actually meet rights to housing in cities. And then there we have an opportunity to build something at a much larger scale that we tested over here. So I think actually, you know, being relentless about experimenting and also paying very close attention to Overton windows of opportunity and uh, and then continually uh, bridging, not just worlds, but bridging across sectors, bridging across kinds of people. You know, it's why, you know, this this book has such a diversity of people in terms of backgrounds, interests in, in so many different forms of diversity. And we could have many, many others also who would have written chapters with similar interests. So, so many people are involved in this. So it's kind of helping to organize and to curate some of that um, radical potential for change uh, to bring into being. And then, you know, th there are some ideas for very specific things in the book, like hybrid forms of governance. So we have uh, we have governments as they are, but, but could we create, for example, a mayor for the future, where a mayor has actually accountabilities to future generations and is a little bit outside the logics of, you know, the, um, the, the dissonance that mayors have today, where it's in their rational interest to keep expectations low because they deliver service to people. But while we actually need mayors who are also very much committed to better long-term futures. So can we actually bridge by creating some Something hybrid towards these uh, these much higher higher level accountabilities. There are all kinds of things like that with regulatory experimentation labs that we've been testing out and could build more of. There is also putting the idea of a sacred civics lens onto major investment and infrastructure decisions in cities, or a seven generations lens, so that you know something. You know, does does building roads in the way we do make sense, or should we actually have urban forests that roots are connected below the ground and they're actually food forests instead? And how can we work towards something like that for people? You know, not just today, but for people in a hundred, two hundred years and and beyond. Like, how can we be building some of those kinds of lenses into actual decisions we make, and what that what would that look like? It is tremendously ambitious. And that's what these times call for, right? Absolutely, we need a, a lot more ambition. And I actually, as I'm as I'm thinking about all of this before I knock down my mic, that there's there's got to be more editions of this book, right? I think we're gonna have, you know, seven generation cities, and we're gonna have seven seven generations, if not more, of the type of work and inquiry and 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 conversation that 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 you have all. Put together, um, the the idea of a of a different type of mayor, I, I think, is a is a great way to start. As New York is burdened with a terrible mayor, I people who listen to the show all the time are, are going to probably get tired of me bashing Eric Adams continuously, which is one of my favorite things to do because he is a absolute nightmare. Um, <laughs> and it and it makes me sad though because I think about my time of living in New York all these years, 
and I could look across the landscape and say, I've, I've had like one good mayor, right? Like Kacha was too young and, and he was like a weirdo. The more you find out about him, Dinkins was awesome. He's also my chapter brother. So shout out to beta chapter. And then I had Giuliani Bloomberg and now Eric Adams. It's like, what a shitstorm of terrible humans, right? It's, it's an awful, awful thing. But um, you know, I'm, I'm, I had to I had to go out with slamming. Yeah, Eric I was Adams. I was gonna say, wait, I, I, but Phil, can can we also just add to that that mares do live um, with tremendous dissonance, right? They have the 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 competing interests that they are trying to navigate and that that they are trying to meet these sort of low level expectations, not low level, meet these everyday expectations of delivering services, which are absolutely essential, but yet have a vision for a very different city of, of the future. Those things are very often at odds. Yeah, absolutely. Especially when you have no vision at all, right? <laughs> like that's, that's always a, a good place to start, right? When, you're, when your vision is of nothing, when you have no vision at all, right? Except real estate developers and cops, then it's very easy to not think about anything else, right? He sucks. Lori Lightfoot, you suck too. So there's like a bunch of them that I can name out there that are that are awful, right? But we can we could do this forever, but we can't. We right. So I, I want to get to the drop and and the drop is just an opportunity for us to share anything at all with our listeners that we think are valuable. And I always go first just so we don't have to like compete where who's going to go first and who's going to go second. So my drop are actually two pieces of music. One is um, Raphael Sadiq, who's the lead singer, was the lead singer of Tony, Tony, Tony. He's the current music supervisor for um, Insecure. He does lots of projects. So Raphael Sadiq is clearly famous, but his, his first solo album was called Instant Vintage. And it's a great record. And I think it's one that should be revisited more and more to the extent that it is not. And my second album is completely on the other side of the musical landscape, perhaps. It's Def Leppard's Hysteria, which came out when I was in high school. And these videos were all over MTV. Like they were part of my daily MTV viewing. You couldn't get away from Pour Some Sugar on Me. And this is a song that has endured in New York nightlife and other nightlife, you will hear this song at some point of your night when the DJ's like doing his rock part of the night. But it's an almost perfect record. Like if you were inclined to like that kind of big 80s arena rock, I think Def Leppard's Hysteria is perfect <laughs> from beginning to end, a perfect record. Um, so those are, are my two drops. <laughs> so Tanya, I'll let you go first with your drop or drops. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. I will follow suit with two drops. Um, one is for a podcast series and the other is a, a music platform. So I really love the podcast series called Native Seed Pod. Uh, it's with Melissa Nelson, uh, who's from the Cultural Conservancy Organization, which is an Indigenous-led, Indigenous rights uh, organization. And it, it really explores and kind of celebrates Indigenous food ways, how, you know, different folks and communities are working to rematriate seeds, um, you know, protect and, and uh, kind of steward uh, seed knowledge and, and, you know, kind of broader uh, goals around sustaining resilient communities and ecologies, uh, including restoring agrobiodiversity biodiversity, uh, food sovereignty, ancestral seeds, and seed sharing networks, and the place-based Indigenous knowledges that are needed uh, to renew the health of our earth, of course. And then in terms of music, this is not new, of course, but I really love the, the Colors Studio platform, you know, especially during the pandemic, that was, you know, kind of rocking my world in the, it was, you know, kind of the, the soundtrack of my my work day at, at different times and um and you know so encountering different emerging music artists from all over the world across genres on that 
platform. Uh, it makes it really accessible for those young and emerging artists um, to, to be able to showcase their music and, um, and get it out into the world and, and make, you know, important uh, connections and networks. And, and I saw that a lot of them are really disrupting and innovating and syncretizing sound and rhythm and content in really fresh and amazing ways. So a uh, little props to, uh, to Color Studios platform. That is awesome. Jane, you're up. All right, thanks. So I'm going to share two. I'll do it quickly. Uh, there are two books. And uh, books were both writing this book and editing and writing this book and reading books were, were what kept me sane <laughs> through the <laughs> pandemic, to be honest. And uh, so I read a lot of good books, but there are two that changed me in my bones. And two that changed me in my bones uh, that also affect, I think of something from those books, I think every day. And the two are, uh, one is by Clint Smith, uh, How the Word is Passed, A Reckoning with the History of Slavery Across America, just an absolutely beautifully written and articulated book and helped me to see, see things that I hadn't seen in, in that way before. And then another one is by Kahinde Andrews, also a Black and African scholar um, based in the UK, but of uh, Jamaican ancestry as well. It's called The New Age of Empire, How Racism and Colonialism Still Rule the World. And it's an incredible articulation of histories of uh, genocide, enslavement, and colonialism and how they are deep in our you know, institutions, mindsets, practices, uh, not just in the past, but of course, continuing today and into the future, and, but manifest in very different ways, in ways that we just sort of take for granted. Um, they're fully social constructions, but we take them, there's so much that we take for granted, of course, which relates to property and so much of what we talked about in cities. So yeah, those are mine. And uh, I thank you, Phil. Oh, that was awesome. I, I, I love the drops. I, I love the conversation. You know, we, we could have been going on with this conversation for seven generations, but that would be way too long, right? <laughs> um, and it's, you just always, despite the, the fact that the show is called The Deep Dive, when you're dealing with work that is is so extensive and so important, you can only scratch the surface. But I think that gives our listeners an opportunity to to really engage with this work. Like I said, this is the this is the type of work that is should be required reading in any number of disciplines, and it should also be um, seen as a very valuable resource guide. Again, it's Sacred Civics: Building Seven Generation Cities. Jane, Tanya, I want to thank both of you for being on the deep dive with me and, and sharing this time. This was awesome. I kept it mostly clean, to which I'm very happy that I was able to accomplish that. But but thank you both for, for being on the show with me. Thank you, Phil. It was a joy and an honor to be here. Thanks so much. Thank you, Phil. Yeah, I, I concur. It was such an amazing conversation. I really loved your insights and, and facilitation. And uh, yeah, and it was relatively painless. Good. <laughs> and, and really Mission. energizing. Mission accomplished. Relatively painless. I'll take it. <laughs> Thanks again for being on the show with me. You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, I thank you. See you on the other side.